Welcome to a special episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and we'll be bringing together many of the voices who have joined us for a compilation that offers a wider view. We're looking at the marvel of nature and not so much the beauty of a remote view or exotic creature, but the extraordinary system of creation that is born from the symbiosis of many parts working together. In particular, we're discovering the role of nature within the health of the planet and balance of the climate, before considering how significantly human impact through our methods of farming the land has been destroying these very systems that we depend upon. It's a story that cycles back round. For as concerning and detrimental as things have become, there is huge hope brought through with the ever-blossoming areas of regenerative agriculture. We gain understanding from many locations and situations across the globe, and I hope by bringing things together in this way, we offer a greater clarity that we do have the means to turn things around. If we jump into efforts that shift our human systems to work in harmony with the systems of nature, then the potential is to solve many problems side by side, and fairly quickly. Throughout this episode, you'll hear from Caroline Grindrod, Colin Andrews, Dr. Christo Miliotis, Finian Makepeace, Peter Lungard, Jackson Bazingo, Bernadette Millard, Michelle Gilman, and Adrian Ferrero. They're all guests who've had their own episodes on the show previously, and so I'll add further details for who's speaking when and how to find their full interview, all within the written description. And while you're taking a look, you can also find information for how to get involved in a new cohort learning experience that I'm in the process of launching. It'll expand upon the topics of We Are Carbon in a more collaborative and actionable way. Please take a moment to have a glance if it sounds of interest. So let's get stuck in and start out with learning why the answer to climate change requires us to turn to the soil. If you go back to when natural systems were functional and and they worked as a, a whole healthy system in balance, then there was no issue with with you know emissions because ultimately it balanced itself so essentially you had uh, co2 in the atmosphere it was taken up by plants photosynthesizing and it's sequestered into the soil into into very stable forms and of course over the you know thousands of years that would then be put into fossil fuels and sort of locked away deep 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 down and but the cycling co2 the stuff that's sort of in and out is is it's a currency of life. You know, we've got this very negative idea about CO2, but actually it's what we're made of. It's what your apple's made of. It's cows are made of it. So they're taking in through the things the green plants are eating or we're eating, and then we're eating animals that have eaten green plants, you know, the CO2s that are coming through the system. And then we're slightly, you know, breathing it out uh, as CO2 again. Uh, And methane is just a slightly different way of that process happening. So, you know, um, in a very healthy system, like I say, CO2 would be taken up by the plants, put into soil structures, uh, and then eventually eaten and then released in a cycle. But methane also is taken up. Um, there's, there's, there's various methods of, of sort of uh, oxidizing methane. There's methanotrophs in the soil that oxidize it in the soil. There is the hydroxyl ion pathway, which is kind of with moisture and ozone there's a chemical reaction that happens that kind of cleanses it and then turns it back into cot which will then be taken up by plants so there's this kind of whole system function that just works completely and and it worked for a very long time and we had herbivores in the system we had huge 
herds all over the you know the world of different um grazing animals all belching methane and it was getting reabsorbed and 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 balanced within the system and the climate was very stable and in those climates that are very covered in vegetation there's lots of mechanisms that keep the climate cool including you know keeping soil covered so it doesn't get very hot it could be 40 degrees hotter on a on a bare soil than it can under vegetation you know big trees can be like have this incredible cooling effect they're like um you know, they just they cool they cool through that process of transpiration and under you can just feel it when you're under a tree. It's you know, in the hot, sunny weather, it's just that's why animals go under there. It's 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 it has that cooling effect. And so it's not re-radiating heat back out into the atmosphere, which is having that heating effect. You know, it cleanses the the, the vegetation cleanses um heat you know, heat hazes and there's just many, many mechanisms. We have that um tropical effect where you get kind of heat windows where you you get humidity building up during the day and then there's a thunderstorm and that creates a big radiation window which means that cools through the nights and all these very natural processes that all work together and in a healthy environment those plants are up there photosynthesizing turning carbon dioxide and sunlight using water into sugars and you would think that they would be selfish enough to hold those sugars in just for their own growth but in a healthy soil, they exude some of that sugar into the soil because they have a contract with the fungi and the bacteria, which is they will feed them sugars in return for which they get their micronutrients. Now, micronutrients are literally micro. They're not like nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, which are key for growing. They're the little ones that just make the plant more resistant to disease, insect um, predation, and also help them grow. Those microbes, have, they mine, harvest, and deliver nutrients to the plant in a very regulated way. It's so finely regulated that a plant will release certain substances which will encourage those specific microbes which will mobilise those specific nutrients that the plant needs. In fact, if a plant needs a calcium molecule, through particularly the fungal thread networks, it can take that calcium molecule from 200 metres away. So there's a whole underworld, a a fabric of of highways, nutritional highways and communication highways. If you look in nature where there's there's forests, you know, there's no monoculture in forests and you see this vigorous growth and there's no fertiliser. It hasn't been done for centuries. Plants and microbes build healthy, functioning, nutritious soil. When there isn't any carbon in the soil, we call that dirt. That's that's no longer really soil. What I mean by that is it's basically just sand, silt, and clay, mineral particles from rock that have weathered. That's dirt without carbon in it. Carbon in the soil world is called organic matter, and you can have dead and or living things in there, things that were once living and things that are, are dead now. Those are what make up the organic material. Where does that come from? Well, a lot of that can happen when things decompose at the surface. Most of us have learned in textbooks in high school that leaves and grasses and dead animals and things, when they fall to the ground or roots, when they start to decompose, they create that composty looking topsoil stuff. That's where we learn. 
What we didn't understand and didn't learn was that plants, living plants, through photosynthesis are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere to grow. We learned that part, but we didn't learn that 30 to 40% of the, the liquid carbon sugars that they're taking from the atmosphere, building from the atmosphere, they're pumping out of their roots to feed microorganisms. The plant root, my fingertips, leaks out sugar, okay? Microbes around the root tips consume that sugar. Therefore, they're made of carbon, right? Some of those, a lot of those, like mycorrhizal fungi and, and different bacteria, they create glue as they go through their living dying uh, cycles. Those glues are made of carbon too, because those organisms are made of carbon. Those glues glue the soil particles together in aggregates. This becomes the infrastructure, the glued together built infrastructure, multi-dimensional infrastructure of the soil that is like a sponge, literally can hold 20 times its weight in water, it's like a super sponge underground. So when it rains, you're absorbing and retaining that water. Plants who poke their roots into that sponge are able to access water for a much longer time. They're able to photosynthesize for longer. If they're photosynthesizing for longer, they're able to pump more carbon into the ground. If they're able to pump more carbon into the ground, that means more microbes are fed. More microbes means more glues. More glues mean more soil sponge building. So you're literally building down into the soil profile, increasing that soil sponge. That means more plant cover, more plants are going to be uh, transpiring water. That means more availability for cooling. That means more uh, seeding of rain clouds. So when you vegetate an entire ecosystem, you're not just counting on the, the ability to absorb more water, you're essentially allowing for cloud formation to occur because you've cooled the surface. So you have more rainfall and then you're recreating a small water cycle. So a lot of times we hear about large water cycles where water comes from the ocean every so often and dumps on here and then it runs all off into to the ocean again, it comes back. That's the large water cycle. The small water cycle is water evaporating in a, in a region, becoming clouds and falling back to the earth. When we uh, cover the ground again, we're able to recreate the small water cycle. So that's a regenerative feedback loop. More water means more plant coverage, more plants, more photosynthesis, more carbon into the ground, more soil sponge, and on and on. That's creating a regenerative feedback loop that nature invented or evolved to have. It's more than a little impressive to understand that the lush green environments of nature are just as functional and regulatory as they are beautiful. And of course, we don't have to look far to recognize that that extraordinary climate balancing evolution has been disrupted by our human activities. Where is the vegetation and biodiversity in our built environments? Our management of land for farming has stripped the face of the earth across continents to leave bare soils that are treated mechanically for producing a remarkably small variety of crops. So let's look at this now in more detail. And after we understand further why the health of the climate depends so heavily upon the health of the land and the life within soil, you'll note us move to consider why it's also impactful upon the health of people too. Modern farming has taken us down a path that's ended up us dealing with a lot of symptoms, creating a lot of our own problems, degrading soil and reducing biodiversity. So that has to that has to change. Um, an ecosystem is a plant photosynthesizing, putting 
you know, carbon through its roots into the soil food web, the whole fertility of that plant depends on everything eating each other. It depends on bacteria absorbing nutrients from the rock. It depends on the protozoa eating the bacteria and then releasing through the decay and necronomas and, and sort of excretions of those organisms, the plant gets fed. That's just death and decay at a small microscopic level, but they're all living creatures. And then those plants will be then eaten by an animal and um, balanced by an animal. The insects that are eating the plants will be regulated by, you know, predation and wasps. And the whole system is utterly intertwined and, and balanced through the interaction between plants and animals. And then what we've really done is we've come in and we've decoupled that system. So we have taken those herbivores, we've shot the wild ones um, and we've put them into, you know, over, over hundreds of years in various different ways. Essentially, we've taken those herbivores, we've changed them into domestic livestock, and then we've housed them. So rather than having that whole system cleansing system, we've then decided that we're going to plough the soil that's exposing the microbes, that's releasing the carbon to the atmosphere again. It's heating the planet, having bare soil. So the oxidization of the methane can't be effective because you haven't got the methanotrophs in the soil. You haven't got the oxidization through the moisture, transpiration through the trees, the plants. So, And you've got heat hazes that are preventing, you know, they're sort of dimming the sunlight. So they're reducing how much oxidation can happen. CO2 can't be sequestered into that bare soil because there's no plants um, photosynthesizing. And then you're growing the plants through the short season. Uh, and then you're shipping them using fossil fuels that you've taken out of long stored ancient carbon. Um, and then you're using all of those heavy, you know, ancient carbon inputs through fertilizers and uh, all the chemistry we use to try and keep our crops safe. And you're taking that product to the animals that are housed. Those animals are belching methane, but they're not in an environment that's taking it out again. And then that manure is being stored in huge piles so that that's releasing methane. And ultimately, you've then got a very different system, you know, that isn't regulating itself. And the problem is that nature doesn't stop at a fence. You know, nature requires a whole system you, you can't just say right well we're going to be really intensive there use lots of fertilizer lots of sprays and then that's not going to impact nature elsewhere we're, we're going to put that area over to to those you know that in you know uh, wild species but those wild species need a clean environment and healthy watersheds and not to be killed by pesticides and to be able to migrate across land and and have a shared ocean that's not polluted by fertilizers if we want to leverage how our climate was originally cooled through nature, through the periods that had huge amounts of vegetation and gigantic ferns and and uh, and sequestered all that carbon and methane out of the atmosphere so that we had the climate that we now have. If we want to then leverage those same processes to try and you know rescue us now, then yeah, we've got to come up with a different way of looking at how this all works. The problem is we have damaged our soil. We have not treated it with reverence. And the soil has spent hundreds of thousands of hundreds of millions of years having a relationship with plants. Plants know how to grow it, and the soil knows how to react to it. And of course, the soil is a living thing. So to actually ignore soil or treat it like dirt is the worst thing and the most arrogant thing that humans can do. Humans have always, since they started farming land, have always damaged the soil. But until the Industrial Revolution came along, we couldn't do it in an industrial scale. We didn't have the machines, it was just people. So the soil had, basically nature was stronger than we were. 
And then, then obviously we got this machinery and bigger and bigger machinery and less and less people needing to do it. And then we thought, oh, we can invent chemicals that can do what that bit that we want the soil to do. And so what we've done in that arrogance is we've destroyed, or we are in the process of destroying that top 30 centimetres on which the whole world depends for its living the whole answer from the Western world is, ah, you've got to put fertilizer on it. And the fertilizer you need to use is the stuff we used to put in bombs to drop on Germany or Japan or wherever. But now we've converted it. It's the perfect chemical. And, and of course, the IRA reversed that and used to get fertilizer to make bombs uh, in, the, in Northern Ireland, as you probably know. They use fertilizer. So fertilizer is old bomb material, but it does do, it does make plants grow. The problem is twofold. One is that the acidity of the soil, if you use these, goes up over a period of years. That is, the pH goes down, which makes it harder to grow quite a lot of plants. They, they are, they can adapt, but it just doesn't grow as well. But the really nasty thing about um, using these fertilizers is that it breaks the contract between the plant roots and the soil living organisms. Nutrients need to be delivered by microbes. And when you bypass the normal way in which a plant gets fertilised, that is through what's called the hair roots, where it's got a very small diameter, which increases the amount of surface area, in, in proportion to the diameter. So the finer the hair root, the, the more surface area. And that surface area is interacting with the soil microbiome. Putting chemicals and force-feeding a plant with nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium is just so wrong. And I'll explain it further. I referred before to the little fine hair, hair roots. There's two kinds of roots. There's the thicker roots, which are more um, anchor the plant in the soil. And then off those main roots is the fine hair roots. The other function of those thicker root systems, because they've got a, a, a wider diameter and they've got um, high concentrates of sugars and so on, there's a particular osmotic gradient whereby water is sucked into the the root system. So they're the drinking straws of the root. Now, if you have a water-soluble uh, fertilizer, that's going to go through the wrong delivery. Uh, and that basically, uh, to put it crudely, stuffs up the whole plant. I mean, you're basically force-feeding a plant. What happens is you get bloated plant cells. They're weak, they're vulnerable, they're prone to disease, they're prone to insects. And they're not nutritious. So when people say, oh, organics is more expensive, well, do you want to pay for salt and water? Plants are particularly susceptible to poor nutrition. So if we haven't got a functional soil food web, the plants aren't able to make strong, strong structures. They're not able to make those waxy coatings that protect against insect pests. They're, they're floppy. They fall down in hail and rain more easily. They rot in wet more easily. They're prone to diseases because they can't produce their own secondary metabolites, the chemicals that prevent that sort of thing happening. So ultimately, we've just got a very 
yeah, uh, the opposite to resilience. We've just got a very vulnerable situation where we're prone to all sorts of things going wrong. And we're doing that in the face of climate change, which is going to bring the biggest challenges um, um, in the future. We're going to have more heavy rain. We're going to have more high winds. We're going to have heavy hailstorms. You know, we're going to have long periods of drought. So we need to have more resilience, not less. In regard to linking up agricultural practice with climate change, one of the problems is that if you use nitrogen fertiliser, by the way, nitrogen's 78% of the atmosphere and can be harvested by nitrogen-fixing microbes free, um, those nitrogen fertilisers do a number of destructive things. One of them is that at best, only 30% of the nitrogen goes into the plant. That means 70% and up to 90% goes into the waterways, causing um, eutrophication, algal blooms, dead zones, uh, aquatic uh, life is killed off and so on. The other component goes to the atmosphere when the nitrogen gets oxidized to nitrous oxide, which is 296 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So it's a really reckless practice. Also, the nitrous oxide can be altered further in the stratosphere to, to erode the ozone layer, which is diminishing, even though there's been attempts to reverse that, which has been partially successful. So nitrous oxide is not good. Carbon is vital for carbon's the building block of life and and water is the sustainer or bearer of life and they exist they coexist like you know there's a marriage there and what i'm getting at is that we have when we use water soluble fertilizers we basically burn up this incredible important natural capital called soil carbon of which the whole life of the soil revolves around. And it, it consumes the carbon in a ratio of 1 to 12, meaning for every kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer you put on the soil, you consume 12 kilograms of carbon, which gets oxidized and goes to the atmosphere. It's like burning a fossil fuel. But there's pictures, um, satellite pictures of the world during plowing season. And it shows the amount of carbon dioxide given off by the very effects of carb of ploughing. If we stopped ploughing just that one thing, we would reduce the amount of carbon dioxide put into the atmosphere hugely. The industrialized agricultural model, this model is in uh, um, uh, mining of carbon, uh, basically. And of course, we see that on our on our uh, statistics on our on our prairie soils and in Canada and the U.S. that the, uh, you know, then since they started farming the, the prairies soils that the, uh, the carbon levels have been uh, dropping, dropping, dropping. Uh, they were, you know, five or six percent to start and now they're down to one, one and two percent. Um, so the carbon is being mined out of the soil. And of course, the great gold in the soil is carbon. And uh, without within that, the carbon is what um, this makes the soil nutrients happen, uh, soil microbiology happen, 
uh, it's like the football field for all uh, all the microbiology microbiology and everything to function and happen on and so when you deplete that and of course and it's tremendous amount of water holding capacity and so and and, and it's it's the basis of your soil structure and uh, everything so if you've got no carbon in your soil like ideally you need five percent uh, if you haven't got no carbon in your soil if you've got low numbers of carbon levels then uh, your whole system is, is in jeopardy. When there isn't any carbon in the soil, we call that dirt. That's, that's no longer really soil. That means when it rains a lot, the water doesn't infiltrate. You get flooding. That means when it is a drought, none of that water stayed in the soil for the plants to use later. Aside from a couple deserts in the world, humans have created all the deserts. There's a couple that are very argued like, well, it could have been humans or... It could have been shifts in climate or uh, certain things that happened, but most deserts that you see across the world are human started. And then sometimes they, they reach a tipping point in brittle environments where you don't have enough uh, self recovery that happens because of the moisture or humidity. Humans' ability to tip something over into desertification can happen very quick. So many accounts in Australia, you know, within three or four years, the most lush, beautiful uh, prairie grass systems wiped out from uh, overgrazing and tilling and that the, the, the white folks who came there did. And like the counts are just, you know, make you tear up because it's so sad and devastating how fast an exported agricultural system that's not done in context of a more brittle, fragile environment can just uh, completely degrade a landscape, denude it. And then now people think that's just what it is. But that's not Australia. Australia's, that's not how Australia is supposed to be. That happened because of human interference. If we look at how much land is being degraded and the rate of land de de degradation that's so bad that farmers can't use it anymore, here's the figure. 30 million acres. England is 32 million acres. So an area nearly the size of England every single year becomes too degraded on land that is farmable land becomes too degraded for farmers to use anymore, even with the addition of lots of chemicals and fertilizer to prop it up. So that's the rate that we're going of degradation. So farmland is being put aside as too far gone to use anymore at that rate. And if we keep going the rate we're going, it doesn't get, uh, um, continuously worse it gets exponentially worse because in regions where you have desertification it it leads to more desertification and drier climates and more flooding etc cetera, etc cetera. i can tell you in reality we had um, a very good water circles in the in kasulu area uh, where i grew up uh, there was a there was a what we, uh, we, we call a kasulu river this was a very uh, huge river in Kasulu, but he, that river is no longer there. So this means that human activities has led uh, to contribute in some way uh, to, 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 to destroy these water cycles. So right now, the climate crisis has led to more challenges. People are not able to cultivate in that area because there is no water. Even they have to walk even uh, more distances, like uh, five kilometers to find water, even for domestic users and the farming activities due to the impacts of climate change that has been associated with the deforestation, 
and also uh, agrochemical farming uh, practices has led to the soil depletion. So it's a, it's a challenging right now because uh, the farmers uh, have rely on only on their generating of income only in farming, and their their land is I mean their soil is not a, is not healthy anymore. Agrochemical farming has laid many challenges to them because most of them, they don't have a capacity uh, in terms of funding to ensure that in every uh, cultivation season, they are able to buy fertilizers. And um, uh, unfortunately enough is that agrochemical uh, farming practice does not work with nature. So um, instead of improving people's life uh, through agriculture, uh, it, it, it creates more chaos and, and farmers they are not happy because uh, it, it, it takes everything they have because most of the smallholder farmers do have a small income that they get after a harvest of their of their of their produces. So once they have um, saved this uh, uh, something, then in the in the next cultivation season, they have to use such amounts again to buy fertilizers. So you can see that they they remain with nothing. So it's a very huge challenge here. The pesticides that are being used today are systemic pesticides. So it's a pesticide which is taken up often by the roots of the plant, but it's in the plant tissue. No amount of rinsing or soaking is going to remove that pesticide. And the beauty of it for the farmer is that when a bug bites a leaf, that the bug dies. Uh, we're eating it more than once, and no one today really can predict the health consequences of those pesticides accumulating in, in the human body. And it's a special concern, obviously, for children. Sadly, farmers are currently rewarded by the number of kilograms of the food. It's got nothing to do with the quality of the food. And the way you can push a plant to grow is through nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but that is only three elements of which a plant requires for a healthy nutritional base. When you apply an artificial chemical that's been made in a laboratory, which nature hasn't developed over the last 300 million years, you are interfering with that contract between the roots and the soil. And instead of that, you shove your chemical in there and it goes straight up into the plant. And you might say, well, that's good enough. We've done it. The problem is those micronutrients aren't getting into the plant, which is damaging the nutritional value of the plants, of the crops. And this is worldwide. The FAO have shown how the number of trace elements in our vegetables and in our meats has dropped since 1950 in some cases by 40 to 50%. Our job as farmers is to feed the soil because the soil knows how to feed the plants and the plants know how to feed the soil. They've got a good contract. If we're going to move forward with, with human health, we need to work with this whole system function to, to get the benefit of that. We, you know, we're understanding so much about the biological systems that we didn't know before. And as you say, a, an apple that's grown from a tree with a healthy fungal network at its feet is going to be a very different apple to one that's grown in a chemical system. And if our food is being imported from places where we're growing it in toxic soils, basically the soil food web is broken down. So the plant can only take up what's in, this, in that you know, immediate environment around its root zone. 
which is incredibly limited, but in a complex, healthy system, the plant is exuding sugars and communicating with the microbes that are absorbing a much wider range of nutrients out of the rock and the crystalline structures in the soil. So you can the plants are healthier. They've got this huge range of um, nutrients available to them, so they can build their own mechanisms of defense. They have the secondary metabolites in there that are incredibly healthy for us. Um, those plant chemicals, you know, that we know are incredibly healthy for us. That also keep our animals healthy, and that whole system works better because then we're not having to treat our animals with medications that are then obviously impacting our own health. And so, so in a healthy system, you know, our gut can be healthy our microbiome can be healthy where we're, our soil and uh, the 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 soil of our gut if you like the organisms that are in our gut are the same things you know they're, they're we're just passing from one to the other so if we kill our soil and we don't take in those phytochemicals from those healthy plants then you know we're just going to get sick and rely more upon medication so the whole system works together and we are part of it which is no wonder we're seeing such huge health issues now Intestinal lining is like we have soil inside us and the microbiome is equivalent. I call it the parallel universe, that, that there is a microbiome in the gut and there's a microbiome in the soil and what we do to the microbiome in the soil directly affects the microbiome in the gut, even getting friendly bacteria from the soil. And we know that. But when you use an antibiotic on the soil and basically everything fertilizes herbicides, fungicides, pesticides, everything else aside is basically anti-life and, and, and is killing the soil. And, and the soil is not only being killed, but we are outnumbered 10 to 1. We have 10 times as many microbes in our gut than we have cells. We're talking 100 trillion potentially. So we are altering the ecology of the gut microbiome to favor disease and not health. We're waging a war against nature, and but we're part of nature, so we're waging a war against ourselves. The word nutrition can evoke a lot of different associations and emotions from people. There's so much contention in the field, and at the core are both detachment from our food sources, aka nature, and also uh, this fragmented industrialized food system. Much of what goes into packaged products are foreign to our internal systems. And one thing is to take this in moderation, yet another is to be consuming it every day, maybe all day, every day. So the familiar nutrients they do contain tend to be disproportionate compared to food from the earth. They're also guilty for leading far too many innocent people to consume more sugar, salt, and oils than our bodies have been conditioned to deal with. So these societal demands are affecting the sustainability of food systems. It's like a giant feedback loop. The more that we become accustomed to it, the more that that demand then feeds back as an input into the food system, encouraging this um, method of production. The farmers that are producing the raw materials are completely separate from the processing of those materials in large factories, which are then disconnected from the companies that are flavoring, preserving, packaging, and selling those products, who are even likely to be in separate countries. As it goes along the chain, you know, it grows, these, these products gradually grow in uh, value and cost. And companies at the end of the chain have sworn an oath to provide these products to consumers at the lowest possible prices. So take a minute to consider what does this all mean? Uh, what are the financial implications of this long value chain for farmers? What are the climate implications for this process that pressures farms to adopt 
time and labor-saving industrial practices and technologies such as toxic fertilizers, pesticides, and monocropping, and the necessity of fuel-powered transport between each actor, and the waste that comes out of each stage. What are the implications on human health? It's a reminder that our bodies have evolved on food from the earth. Well, I know I've talked to farmers and they have to increase their fertilizer year on year for the same yield. They were getting higher yields from it. And, and then a lot of that fertilizer gets washed out and, and damages our rivers, our streams and our biodiversity. So it, it's unsustainable in sort of every way you can think of. We're damaging the soil, we're damaging the environment and making less and less profit. So it's a very uneconomical system and very wasteful. Even the energy expenditure in producing the fertilizer in the first place is high intensity, carbon intensive. Then you transport the fertilizer and yet 79%, 78% of nitrogen is in the atmosphere. Farmers cannot afford the, to spend the same money in fertilizers. If you see the, the cost of urea, for instance, which is one of the main fertilizers that is being used in agriculture, well, uh, it's like uh, five times uh, higher the price than, let's say, 12, 10, 10 months ago. Now we're in a moment where agriculture is transitioning into a new model. We need to make agriculture activity sustainable from the economic point of view as well. But at the same time, we can help uh, to support the sustainability of the planet. If we turn from a carbon-intensive uh, farming into a carbon-friendly farming, keep in mind that agriculture is responsible of 10% of the carbon emissions. So there is a, this double effect. On one hand, we stop releasing carbon from the agricultural activity, and on the other, side, uh, on the other hand, we start compensating this, uh, this impact by sequestering carbon. And this could also bring revenues to farmers, which is very interesting. And now we are able to share the knowledge because we're in the data society. So that's great because uh, the information just fly at a great speed. So we don't need to, to really make experiments place to place to learn. If somebody make an experiment in one region of the world, the rest of the world can learn from that. So, yeah, I, I'm very optimistic on, on the momentum of agriculture. OK, so there's a lot to take in there. Though it all does seem to make it really clear that the future of the planet's health is so closely tied to the future of our own health. As Michelle pointed out so well, we have become detached from our food. But perhaps food could become a key motivation to connect us all back to nature, as it becomes ever more necessary to become aware of how our choices can heal or harm our own bodies. And it's great to hear Adrian's optimism there as he recognises that the situation is built up to so many pressures that we're now finally at a tipping point and readiness to transition to more healthy practices on the land. So now let's take a look at what the future could hold. What do regenerative agricultural practices evolve and how quickly could we turn things around? So we're looking at these catastrophic situations that are people are facing daily on the ground. And we say, how do we solve that? Well, the long story short is to build back healthy functioning soil. We need carbon that's currently in the atmosphere causing a problem. So the problem is the solution. So we say, 
we can take that carbon that's causing a thermal blanket in the atmosphere, bring it into the soil where it builds back a soil sponge so we have functioning healthy land and ecosystems again. Humans can be a healing regenerative part of this and we, we arguably have to be. If we help rehydrate that landscape, we're gonna have seeds that have been waiting come back. And you'll often hear farmers who are doing regenerative agriculture they're not only getting bird populations and insect populations back, they're having species of plants they haven't seen since you know, their grandfather's childhood coming back to areas because of how they've rehydrated the landscape. A lot of regenerative uh, ranches around this country in the United States have become wildlife habitats, some of them so much so that they're being, uh, governments are, are, are saying that this is, this is a designated uh, wildlife area now because of how much has been brought back. So we can recreate biodiverse hotspots by regenerating landscapes through producing food. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other. And that's what's so phenomenal. The, the Audubon Society had a, an amazing uh, moment for them of understanding that bird habitat was being restored and, and uh, increased far more in regenerative grazing management than in places that they've just put into conservation. So that's that's where I say this is far greater than than just the food system. This is carbon balance, this is resilience, uh, this is human health. I mean, this is stopping from all, all of these, desertification is affecting so many areas of, of where people are having to flee as refugees, et cetera. So. All of the greenhouse gases, let's take carbon dioxide. Well, that's plant food. That's what plants make carbohydrates in. Uh, let's take, uh, we talked about nitrogen. Now, by not using nitrogen fertilizers and by not emitting nitrous oxide and harvesting the nitrogen from the atmosphere through microbes, we can get the N part of the NPKC system. Um, with regard to methane, there are meth methanotropes, meaning they take methane out of the atmosphere, and there's methanogens, and that's what happens in the rumen of the cow producing methane. You know, they mainly belch methane. So there are soil microbes which are methanotropes and can harvest the methane. So we can harvest the carbon, we can harvest the nitrogen, we can harvest the methane, and the methane through microbial biochemical transformation can ultimately lead to nitrogen source as well. There's a few steps there, but I won't go into that deeper. We, are, we need to really understand uh, symbiotic relationships and, 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 and the harmonies that work in the underground world beneath our feet. And we need to stop the plowing and we need to use microbes, these micro-engineers, to build this, this crumb structure, this air sacs, this lung-like structure so the soils breathe again. The more carbon you have in this structured way that's created by these architects, like Gothic cathedrals, these beautiful dome-like structures that are in the soil, these, these pore spaces, um, it means that... If you have 100 drops of rain, 97 of those drops goes into the soil and only three drops is lost. 
And the critical thing in a climate challenge future is the scarcity of water. The microbes, and particularly the fungi, hold onto the water, and the plants also stop the loss of water back to the atmosphere. Really, the first thing that needs to happen in agriculture, which is happening more and more, is to always keep all of the soil covered all of the time with cover crops and intercropping and so on. If you've got a healthy water cycle um, where the plants are growing all year round and you can retain every bit of the water that falls on that land, the plants are never you know, going dry and reducing production and we can keep growing right the way through the winter because we've got good aerated soils that are not getting saturated, then over the whole year and over, the, over 10 years, our production is going to be off the charts greater than if we've got a monoculture system we get a bumper crop but then the you know it's dry um we've got you know drought and we're not growing anything in between um and similarly if we've got um you know nutrients that are just available all year round at any point because we've got a healthy soil food web and the the the, the animals and the plants don't need interventions and medications and fertilizers because we've got all the nutrients coming through that system and keeping it resilient and healthy and you're not going to get a bad year for crops where something wipes out the whole thing. We need, in my opinion, to move back to this sort of seeing yourself as part of the system and valuing everything within that system so that we understand where we're getting our food from, how it's been grown, how it's been reared, how it's been killed, if that's what you choose to eat. Um, and and we value and make sure all of that is in balance and done well. Um, and when we, I think that's the only way forward. Um, is to sort of, for everybody to get a proper understanding of how functional ecosystems work. We need a different way of managing that uh, complexity. In our work, we work with principles. So we have overarching principles and then we assume and train the farmers themselves so that they can apply those principles in the way that's most appropriate for them in their unique context. And that's a very different way of working. So that means that we can then get abundant output just running from natural inputs in terms of yeah rainfall healthy soil complex diverse systems that are regulating predators and we don't get booming and busting of populations that's causing us our diseases and all the things that we're spending a fortune trying to treat really ultimately the the true sustainable way of making money is to try and turn sunlight and you know natural resources like rainfall into a product that you can sell that's that's what we try and do we look at our, our land maybe as as being a big uh, a big gigantic solar panel and um, the plants on it are this they're all photocells like the plants just photocells cap, cap, uh, capturing sun's energy and converting it to uh, uh, plant material if you have bare ground then you haven't got photocells and you're not converting sun's energy so it's really important to make sure that you uh, build that ground cover and maintain that ground cover and then you have to have a product conversion you have to convert that plant into a product that you can market and so either by harvesting with a machine or with an uh, an, a livestock or an animal then you get a product and then you can market that and and that's part of the solar chain the marketing and then you get a solar dollar and in the process you add to your ecosystem foundation blocks because the more you add to them, uh, the better it gets and the more productivity you're going to have and the more solar dollars you're going to have to put towards reinvestment or to put towards your what you want as a quality of life. And something that's really important in that 
and and uh, when you have a healthy ecosystem it adds stability to your production the more diverse your ecosystem is the more stable it becomes and more and the more st- with stability becomes profitability so the main idea is there to uh, create a diverse ecosystem with plant species and animal species microbiology macrobiology we can actually have like even if you had livestock on top of their soil and top of the ground eating your plants uh, a healthy ecosystem below the ground has got way more uh, by weight by far than on top of the ground it's 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 unbelievable like how much biology can uh, be in our soil and so when you see this happening this unbelievable uh, diversity of, uh, of, of micro bacteria fungi protozoa nematodes all working in harmony this diversity of microorganisms is really it's really where it's at and microorganisms are what makes everything tick uh, minerals that are uh, unavailable in the soil become available and to the plant and then the plant of course um, needs a balance of all these minerals to be healthy and uh, nutrient dense the food it, it's that's the that's the end goal that's good and it all comes from the soil and and uh, so to have healthy people we have to really have healthy soil so we wanted to go beyond organic and focus on tree crops so it's a 15 acre plot on a gravel plain at the foot of Oman's eastern Hajar mountains and it's typical desert borderland, you can say. It's known as Piedmont in Europe or the US. It didn't take long being on the land before we realized, particularly with the, the winds, as well as the high temperatures, that planting a few trees was just not going to cut it. How could we shade, cool the land, deflect desert winds? And very quickly came to the conclusion that trees and using trees as uh, not just for production, but as basic infrastructure for the farm, was by far and away the the best option. In today's terminology, you might describe um, our farm as a regenerative agroforestry uh, model. In fact, what it mimics very beautifully is the traditional oasis agriculture that has been a feature of Oman for the last 5,000 years or more, where you're planting trees is under the the iconic date palm is the hero tree. But underneath that, you then plant a mango, a lime, pomegranates. Uh, You come down then to mulberries and other berries. Then you've got your grasses, your forage plants and your vegetables and finally, um, herbs. And that's in a vertical kind of story system. Traditional Omani uh, agriculture is, in fact, you know, a perfect example of permaculture, planting in guilds, companion planting, and, you know, what you may call today regenerative agroforestry. Very quickly, you notice um, the microclimate um, once the tree starts to develop any sort of canopy, the extent it's it's shading, it's retaining more water in the soil, Um, it allows things to grow underneath it, but also cooling by transpiration. The tree itself is releasing water and um, that also 
as a, a cumulative effect. It's amazing that you can walk along a line of trees in the morning and bury your hand almost to the wrist. And yet if you stretch your hand half a meter out into the sun, beyond the canopy, it's, it's like concrete. You would need a pickaxe to break the soil. And that's something that the tree has done on its own. You plant the tree and you don't need any other intervention. Productivity and resilience build year on year. And that's something that we can see very clearly. Over time, we have had probably less pests. And I think this comes down to the fact we are using so much uh, rich and producing so much rich organic matter in the soil through composting, mulching. We leave the crop residues in the ground um, because the roots keep the soil friable and moist, and then they break down and fertilize kind of organically, naturally. Really, one of the, the most important things we wanted to demonstrate is the necessity to move to a perennial food system. If you're going to adopt uh, this mixed regenerative kind of agroforestry approach to food production, you're going to reduce your inputs in terms of chemicals. You're going to reduce your requirement for large uh, equipment and also the high energy costs of running that. Um, and you're going to have many other positive impacts. The scope is then for innovation in small farm equipment in order to negotiate um, those different levels of, uh, of crops you've got growing. If you look at what we've accomplished with um, no background knowledge in farming, um, limited resources, short space of time, what is designated as marginal land, desert borderlands essentially, which I think account for something like 21% of the available global land mass today are marginal lands. The uh, potential for producing food for a system which is funded and optimized and has all the technical expertise and inputs and a lot of room for innovation in terms of water capture, um, recycling saline water, recycling of uh, grey water on site um, is, is phenomenal and I think a cause for great optimism. We are moving or transitioning into greener farming and the use of uh, biological inputs it's, it's bigger every day. There are new solutions that farmers have available in their uh, input stores, in the retailers, and instead of using chemical or synthesized fertilizers, they can go into different solutions that are going to benefit, for instance, the carbon sequestration, for sure. We are helping them to measure and to track what is happening in the field. Here we have a double effect on why everything is evolving. Now we have new data sets, we have new technologies, we have better understanding, and now we can control what we were not able to control before. The moment where we are right now is that we have really good understanding on what are the actions based on 
let's see, uh, uh, the, 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 the functional profile of a field. Just by looking at what is the current status, we can really see what are the actions that you have to, to do. If we understand properly what is happening underground, we can really, we have an engineering, a new engineering tool to, to really shape the soil or drive the soil uh, in the way we need. With this idea in our head, what we did is to develop a technology that, was able, that is able to really identify all the metabolic pathways, all the bioactivities happening in the soil, and also to measure them. And it's the first time we're able to see uh, this, this data at, at, at the level of detail that we are able to provide. The impact for farmers at the end of the day is that they can really connect to the soil biology, to partner with the soil biology, to enhance those processes and to benefit from the processes, instead of just assuming that those processes are there and are going to happen. Now we can drive those processes. And we look at the microbes from a DNA point of view, so we can profile all of them, the known and the unknown, which is, well, you can imagine, Yes, uh, uh, we have right now in our database, we have identified so far with all the samples that we have processed from different crops, different locations, up to around 10 million different taxonomic units, meaning different microbes. So yeah, we have pretty good understanding how the, the soil profiles at biological level looks like. It's about the biodiversity that you have and how specialized this community of microbes is to really help or support the growth of or the growth of the crops of the plants. We can deliver very uh, precise insights on what is happening underground. And by understanding this community, this network of microbes that is fully connected and understanding their relationships, their ecology, then we can start playing or driving this community into a productive model. If you have a a, a balanced community of microbes, those microbes are going to help the plant to be fit. At the same time, those microbes are going to protect the plant. You want to have the microbes that the plant, uh, that are going to help the plant in different dimensions. When I say different dimensions, I talk about uh, diseases, for sure, so resistance to diseases or uh, reducing the risk of diseases, uh, stress, adaptation, so anytime you have like hydric uh, stress, salinity stress, or all different stresses, um, hormone production, this is going to help the plant also to grow bigger and faster, and then nutritional pathways, so how the plant is feeding. Uh, but not only the, the direct uh, nutrients or the major nutrients like carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, also minor nutrients, because in certain crops, for instance, if you enable the zinc, pathway, what you are doing is increasing the resistance of the plant against certain diseases. This is happening in banana, for instance. So yeah, you want to really unlock certain mechanisms and depending on the crop, you will push some or others. Now we have that knowledge. We know which communities are going to be connected to the mobilization of zinc or others. And the good thing is that there are certain solutions, these probiotics or prebiotics, that mainly biostimulants, that's like the group of them, that are going to, to help the plant for, for all of these dimensions at once. Like now, after 
discovering that my community has been struggling with the many challenges concerning uh, depletion of soil. I introduced this in tropical agroforestry as a method that can assist them uh, build back uh, in terms of uh, soil health and uh, through promoting uh, regenerative agroforestry. So I, I just uh, conducted several trainings to the farmers and I, I reached out to uh, more than 800 smallholder farmers in the, in the Kasul district. And uh, we, 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 most of the farmers are now implementing this uh, syntropic agroforestry uh, and, and, and other uh, regenerative agriculture practices. And uh, the impact now is, is, is now going well because most of the farmers, they, they, they are no longer depending on the chemical uh, fertilizers that uh, were used to be. So this is a, a game changer in terms of agriculture revolution because after practicing this in tropical forestry and, 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 and regenerative agriculture practices, most of the farmers are now able to create a compost and, and, and a pest and a natural pest control on their own. So they don't buy, uh, they don't buy uh, these uh, chemicals, uh, fertilizers and pesticides. And, and also in terms of food, uh, in terms of seeds, they are also sharing native seeds there. So, and we have already trained them on how well they can preserve um, uh, the seeds uh, in order to ensure that they can share them. Right now, I can say the farmers are happy. And um, sometimes they perceive me like a champion, but I perceive them as they are true champions because uh, they have now tra uh, transformed from agrochemical farming to regenerative agroforestry model. So this is very good. Uh, and and it, it gives me strength that uh, my community can be able to fight climate change and, uh, and um, uh, they, they can be able to fight uh, food security, uh, poverty, and uh, all sorts of, of ways. Because when they have uh, enough food, uh, they can be able to solve even uh, malnutrition problems that uh, most of the children are suffering. By chance, I met a chap in Malawi. I was there. And uh, he said, uh, yes, I've got this great method of farming that we've been testing with uh, local community and I went down to meet him and uh, went down with him to the farm and he uh, showed me it and I it blew my mind. I said, this is absolute common sense. Why isn't this spread all over Malawi? And he said, how would you do that? And I said, I'll try and show you. And hence I got hooked into being a trustee. We get very good, quick results. So I'll give you one in Chiteka, sloping land, really suffering from erosion. In our first year there, some of the farmers got eight tons of dried maize to the hectare. One got a shade under 10 tons. And the national average and the average of the three countries surrounding Malawi is between two and three tons. And to get eight tons, and that was more than half the farmers got eight tons or more. And what Tieni does is not huge, but the effect is more than huge because all we do is allow the soil to go back to where it was. We've got lots of comparison pictures of um, the same farmer planted on the same day, traditional and deep bed. And the deep bed, they're taller, they're bright green, you know, that deep, dark green, I should say, uh, the leaves are. And then you look across and they're feebler and yellower, not as green. 
And we're only doing a little thing. It's nature doing the rest. I mean, we find a family of eight can be supported on just a half an acre in deep beds. And that raises a number of other things. The first thing is that they can grow the rest of their land for cash crops, make money to pay for education or a tin roof on their, on their huts. But more importantly, they don't have to farm all their land. They can leave a bit to grow firewood or leave a bit fallow. And that's quite good for biodiversity. So, so there's things appearing from this successful method, which uh, we didn't predict in the early stages. The deep bed method was really developed to deal with what you said, microclimates, or in fact, an unpredictable climate pattern. But what we realise, of course, is that what we're doing to that soil, which is locking all this carbon down into it, is we're not only combating the effects of climate change, but we are, in our own small way, reversing that climate change by taking carbon into the soil. And that's something, again, that when we started on this, we, we, it, wasn't, it wasn't a subject of discussion. But we now realise that if farming is done like this everywhere, huge amounts of carbon can be absorbed into the soil and always were in the past until we started messing it up. And it's so quick to put it right because nature is very forgiving. Thank goodness. We can put it right. It is, and it won't take long. There's a lot of overlapping fundamentals between what is good for us and what is good for the planet. Some of those key factors come down to diversity. What's healthy for the soil is biodiversity. Then that biodiversity leads to dietary diversity again, and social diversity as well. We see that um, regardless of whether it's in the soils, in our on our plate, or socially um, among people, the more diverse, the better. And in addition to diversity, we wanna keep things minimally processed and we wanna keep things familiar. We wanna keep things natural. So soils want to stay as far away from synthetic chemicals as we do. Eating and acquiring your food more locally and being a part of your community food system is really one of the simplest ways that we can vote with our dollars to mitigate the problems caused by the industrial food system. And the more we do it, the more accessible these options will become. Uh, though I said before that healthy options can be affordable, I'm well aware that producing at a smaller scale, small batch, has its challenges for keeping prices competitive yet profitable for sustainable business ventures. So with this in mind, food education and skills training really can only go so far you know, healthy, affordable, local, ecological, somewhat convenient, because realistically, we all deserve a little convenience here and there. Um, but to be able to tick all those boxes for all of our essential dietary needs, uh, we still have a lot more work to do. And that's what's exciting about these regenerative movements that are happening and, and the web that we're all building together. It's really, really difficult in our area uh, and, and lots of areas around the world that for the next generation to get involved in agriculture. I say we have to uh, enhance the system. So regenerative agriculture, I think, is one of the main uh, models to, that will in, enable our younger farmers or the next generation farmers to get um, to come into agriculture. So we have to create a, 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 a system where we have to have health and vit vitality for agrarian communities. I'm, I may be from the old school, but the communities that I grew up in, 
uh, were more of the traditional agricultural practices. We had smaller uh, villages and that we that we 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 sold our products into um, there are our meat and our eggs and milk and dairy products and and we did all that when I was when I was growing up on the farm and uh, and 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 most most all the farms did the similar things. Uh, they had the cream cans that we, you know, all the uh, once a week take the cream into town, and and that was the the m- money for the buying the groceries or whatever from the that we needed in town. So it was, and so that built community, and and um, I'm a firm believer that we can turn, uh, we can help re- re- rehabilitate our climate with regenerative agriculture. It's 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 very doable. Life begets life. And if once we start contributing to that phenomenon of, of self-perpetuating regeneration, it's not that hard. And I've seen very degraded landscapes turn around in three years. It amazes me to think that so much of this pivots on developing harmonious relationships with what we've previously considered as an enemy, bacteria, and the other microscopic life within the soil. I suppose it all boils down to a simple and somehow beautiful recognition that we've inadvertently been waging a war against the very life that's here to support us. Those precious, extraordinary microbes and the diversity within the communities playing such a key role within every ecosystem here on Earth. And ecosystems aren't simply something outside of us to be conserved for their beauty, but something that we are part of and depend heavily upon. With all these factors coming together, raising oil prices, making it a struggle for farmers, growing understanding of the damage caused by the toxic chemicals and how far that damage spreads, along with such an established knowledge and data that can assist a transition, this is a time now for great positive shifts in the agricultural methods we use around the globe. Regenerative agriculture is, of course, a term that can be applied to so many approaches, from small-scale food forests to expanses of grasslands. The key that ties them is that their approaches support the systems of nature, so that they can provide the production that we require without the need for toxic and fossil fuel-derived inputs. And the benefits are nigh-on endless and life-changing. As people are demonstrating that land previously written off to desertification is rapidly being brought back into production, I'd like to consider that this conversation doesn't have to be limited to food. In a regenerative future, we're going to want more and more of our stuff to avoid coming from extracted fossil fuels. And so we could easily say that soil is the new oil. It's not a case of what item you have, but where it came from. It's pretty incredible to think just how creative we've become with the gloopy fossilised carbon that we extract out of the ground. The pigments that colour your clothes and the soft fibres that they're woven from. It's often fossil fuels. And the toys for your children, the furniture you sit on, etc, etc. So just think of the potential and the power of consumer choice when we take consideration of not just where our food comes from, but everything else besides. What would the world look like if it was all grown out of the ground? No extraction of fossil fuels, no emissions from processing or from transport for that matter, 
because it's possible we could grow stuff far closer to where it's needed. And then forget about worrying about waste, because everything that grew out of the soil is more food for the life in that soil once we're done with it. Oh, and let's not forget that we're building soil back with everything we grow, deepening that soil sponge, reversing desertification and biodiversity loss, absorbing more water, establishing greater resilience to an unpredictable future. I don't think we have to be in a time of crisis. If we choose it instead, this could be a time of incredible opportunity. Why don't we design a world that heals the land while we grow all of the abundance that we could desire? And this leads me to a quick shout out for a networking, co-learning experience that I'm starting, where we're exploring the opportunities and potential paths to a regenerative economy. If that sounds like something you could get excited for, then I'd love to invite you to take a moment to find more details within this episode's description. And thank you for listening to this special episode of We Are Carbon. There are many more episodes to come, so let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>